Something spoke to me and said, if you don't do something now, you won't make it till 40. And I knew at that point that I was intentionally hurting myself. And I thought, if I don't write the ship, I'm going to take myself down. And I thought, I have more to do. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in St. Louis, Missouri, Crystal River, Florida, and Cebu City, Philippines. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 83 of season 5, number 382 overall. And man alive, do we have a great success story to share today. At her heaviest, Jamie Morgan Reno weighed more than 400 pounds. She said that life was sad and it was painful. It was hard for her to move and to breathe and she said she didn't have much of a life at all. And when she was out in public people would insult her because of her looks. The sharp tongues did so much damage to her that even though she knew she was killing herself by going to the drive-thru, continuing to eat that standard American diet on steroids, essentially, she couldn't help herself. She was hooked on that standard American diet, all of those high-fat foods. But Jamie's story today has a really happy ending. She's kind of like my kindred spirit in health because Jamie also made it to the other side. She has been able to do what so few of us have been able to, and that's break free of those chains and break that fast food habit, find herself again, and find health and happiness for the first time time in decades. She doesn't need any more of her medication. She's off all of it because she went from eating all of those donuts and fried chicken and pizza and cheeseburgers to eating things like quinoa and vegetables and chickpeas and steamed broccoli, all kinds of colorful whole foods that she says make her feel absolutely vibrant. Amazing success story talking about really transforming your health inside and out. But the part of the conversation that I think will speak to a lot of people who may be struggling with their weight is the real talk that we get into. How maybe today she views eating a veggie burger as a potential trigger for that old cheeseburger that she would eat. It enters her mind, so we get into that. And that may be something that a lot of people making the transition to this new way of eating may be wrestling with. What could trigger those old habits again? But even with that mental tussle, there's still a brilliant new body and newfound health that she is enjoying that is worth every little bit of that residual fast food angst. So today it is real talk. It is real hope. It is definitely real inspiration right here on The Exam Room. To look at you today, Jamie, I would never guess in a million years that you are a fellow food addict, recovery person, somebody who's been in those trenches. You absolutely look fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. In the trenches for sure for many years. Many, many, many years. And I want to talk before 
uh, we get into when you realize that food was such a powerful substance for you, so intoxicating. I want to just ask you uh, what your heaviest weight was. Let's set the plate there. Well, to tell you my heaviest weight, I would tell you, I would have to tell you that I found scales that could weigh me, uh, but I did not. I was easily over 400 pounds. I was topping off scales everywhere. Um, and I would say I was probably around 420 in that range. Yeah, that was my heaviest as well, 420. Welcome to the club. See, you and I, man, we're just kindred spirits here, Jamie. Uh, okay, so what what was life like for you at 420 pounds? For me, it was really limiting as much as I would like to tell you otherwise. Looking back, there was a lot of stuff and a lot of challenges that I didn't even realize at the time because it had become so normal. What was your 400-pound life like? Oh, it was, it was painful. It was sad. It was painful. It was, um, it was hard. Everything about it was hard. It was hard to move my body. It was hard to get out of bed and, and physically do all the activities of life, just the basic activities of life. It was hard to hold conversations without getting out of breath. Um, it was painful because of course the physical ailments and in a weight bearing on my joints was just extremely painful over time. And it was painful in from an, a shame perspective. I would leave the house and perfect strangers would, would comment about me to me, shouting things across stores or parking lots about what I was doing or, or what I was wearing or how I moved my body or what I was buying to eat. I would have perfect strangers say, don't you think you shouldn't eat that? Or don't you think you should rethink that in my grocery cart? I broke chairs. I couldn't fit in airplane seats. I had people, you know, seeing me coming down the airplane aisle and, you know, looking totally, you know, dreadful at me, like, oh my gosh, she, she could sit next to me and this is going to be horrible. Uh, it was just, you know, you name it. It was just a life filled with, um, with pain. Again, I mean, you're telling my story right now. Um, but when people would make those comments to you, this is something that that people don't understand. And I'm not really sure why people feel so inclined to make these comments or entitled to make them. When people make those comments to you out of the blue, what did that feel like for you? Like a like a sucker punch every mm -hmm. time. And you know, it was interesting because I don't I know I wasn't in denial. I knew what I I knew what I was doing. I knew what I looked like in general. Uh, but every time it felt like, whoa, like you see what I, what I see, like, oh, we're on this, you know, we have this sort of, you know, this, this, I had this alternate universe, I think in my head that I, that I thought I, I could do this life this way and get away with it. And then when somebody would, would call me out on it, even in, even somebody in the family or a good friend in a very loving way and sort of an intervention way, I would still feel sucker punched. It was almost like, my denial was so deep that I was really killing myself in so many ways that when somebody would call me out on it, no matter how they did it, it, it always felt like below the belt. Is there one particular instance that stands out to you maybe more than others? Yes. I was on a plane on the way to a conference. And um, of course I had to you know get a seatbelt extender and the, the man I was next to, it was a small plane. It was, you know, one of those, one of those regional jets. And the man I was next to, he, you know, he was sitting there sort of just pushed over in the one side of the seat. And he just looked at me and, and he called the, the, the flight attendant and he said, I, I've got to change seats. And he just looked at me and he said, I, it's going to be more comfortable for, for both of us. And I was just mortified. 
I was just mortified because everyone was looking around. The store was giving me a seatbelt extender. He was changing seats. He, he really wasn't a jerk about it truly, but I, he could have, he could have been Santa Claus, Chuck, and I would have been offended. You know what I'm saying? I was at that point. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting to me though, that that's the one that stands out to you more than others. And maybe it was just because of that. I mean, I mean, maybe a larger scale embarrassment because you're on a plane and there's so many people around. I would think that, you know, some of the things that would leave a longer lasting scar would be those random comments, the really sharp tongued comments that may have come when you were in the grocery store. I remember one time in particular, my family and I were at a Costco and uh, somebody came up and they were like, what are you junk food addicts? Which is exactly what we were. I mean, we were all well over 300 pounds at that point, but it, to hear that from somebody was devastating. And then to be told by somebody uh, who worked at a fast food restaurant that I ate too much was also equally devastating. I'm just surprised that for you, what hurt the most or what stands out the most was that particular experience when somebody was actually as kind as they could be about it. Good, good point. And I th it's interesting because I think I, for many reasons that I'm learning now, I was so used to the bullying. I was so used to the to strangers and other kids calling me out and saying things, adults in my family, adults in, in the world saying things that were, you know, quick and curt and off-putting and offensive. I think I was so desensitized to that, that those kind of rolled off my back, which obviously they didn't, but I thought they did back then that when somebody actually could look at me and look at me in the eye and say something compassionate, I didn't know how to receive it. And it mm. was just so that I, that, that contradiction, I think is very telling from, from me in, in my recovery now. So you, you've got the, that wall built up, uh, as a lot of us, uh, do when we, we are that weight. Right. And we, we kind of put those blinders on and we have this almost skewed perspective. Like I, it, you, you said it very well at the top of the interview, kind of, I know what I look like, but I'm surprised other people see the <laughs> same thing. Right. Like, it, which is, <laughs> you <It's> know, <laughs> It's like uh, people are looking in that, you know, same mirror that you do every single uh, morning. And and it's just um, it's interesting the way that we we view ourselves. But on an emotional front, how did you feel about yourself at that point, knowing that there were these offhanded remarks coming, knowing that you were challenged with your health? You probably at this point also realized that you are out of control. What was your sense of self-worth at that point? It was very low, and you know, I, I used I used a phrase with um, Dr. Lori Marvis when she interviewed me um, for her podcast, and it was, you know, something to the effect of of I didn't know that I was killing myself with food, but I wonder if that was really what I was doing. I was harming so you know so much self harm going on um, that maybe I did have that mindset of um, you know the only thing worth doing in life is food related. Um, and that was really, I think my, probably my mindset at the time, um, very low self-esteem, very low self-regard. Uh, and, and, you know, knowing how sick I was, knowing that I was getting sicker by the year, uh, and still not quite at the bottom. 
did you make a, a, a conscious decision to kind of sacrifice your own happiness in an effort to please others as well? I know that's kind of a really complicated question, but I'll tell you why after I get your answer. It makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know who I was. I was totally in that codependent paradigm, right? Growing up, growing up the way I did, um, I have, I, you know, as, as, um, the effects of the dysfunction of the home that I grew up in and, and, you know, the people around me and in my family and, and circle, um, was a lot of dysfunction and I sort of sold out my true self, uh, to self-protection. And I, and I believe that self-protection came in the form of a shield of body fat and that, that was self-protection for me and disassociation from anything below the neck any kind of feelings, any kind of body sensations below the neck, obviously, right? I was, I was willing to overfeed myself so much to the point where I, you know, I was almost immobile and, and so sick. And, um, I was so willing to disassociate from my body and from anything that I would like to do. So of course, yeah, it was all about others, all about pleasing others or impressing others or, you know, rejecting self. Oh, oh, I get it. And and to be perfectly honest with you, that's something that I still kind of struggle with. It is like my inherent nature to want to fix a problem. Like I am a fixer if there ever was one and I will fix something at all costs, even if it means like I've already worked a 12 or 13 hour day and somebody close to me is unhappy. Let me do everything in my power to, you know, fix their problem, right? Even though all I want to do is just like take care of myself at that point and and be okay. Or I will juggle my schedule like mad to accommodate somebody else um, just because I, I guess sometimes I, I still struggle with, well, am I worth as much as this person? Like, and And I think that a lot of that is residual carryover from being 420 pounds for all of those years. For me, it is for sure. For yeah. me, it is for sure. And I, and I still, I am learning the 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 world of boundary setting, the world of codependent recovery. Um, I'm learning that world. That's that's the world I live in now. You know, the food and the movement uh, is baked in, so to speak. Um, so I I focus more on, um, or as much I should say, on my codependent recovery, my boundary setting, learning about you know all of the parts of me that I've rejected for most of my life up until the last 15 years. You're listening to Food Psychology on the Exam Room <laughs> Podcast. Hi, I'm Chuck Carroll. My guest is Jamie Morgan Reno. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, let, let's let's switch gears here and now talk uh, more about the physical health that comes with this. This is really kind of the nuts and bolts of the Exam Room uh, Podcast here. So obviously we know there's a lot of emotional stuff that's going with this, but being 420 pounds, there's a lot that comes with that in addition to having to find a scale that can go that high. Uh, I know that, man, I had a, a chart in my doctor's office, not even this thick. I mean, it was like this thick, right? I mean, this thing was just, it was like encyclopedia kind of thick. How many health challenges were you facing when you were at your heaviest? Yeah. So great question because I was also a little bit in denial when it came to those until the last year or two when i before i started recovery um 
but I was dealing with high blood pressure, dealing with depression and anxiety, dealing with all kinds of um, joint and, and, you know, mobility issues. Um, and uh, by the very end of, you know, sort of my bottom phase, I was, um, I had sleep apnea. I was pre-diabetic, which I now know is just not insulin dependent diabetic. I would have easily tipped over into insulin dependent, I'm sure within a year of that time. Um, I had heart issues um, from years before I had taken diet pills um, and they were concerned that it affected my ejection function. And um, I was, had migraines and it just, all, you name it, I was living it by that point. Dang on girl. And young and young, only in my early thirties. Oh, that, okay. See, now that's something that also a lot of people can't comprehend. It's like people say you're, you're in your prime when you're in your twenties and you're in your thirties, but when you are that, that weight and you're struggling so much with all of those conditions, it really robs you of your prime. Doesn't it? Did you, did you feel like you were being gypped out of your prime at the time? Uh, yeah, I did. I don't think I knew what a prime was. <laughs> I, I don't think I started hitting my prime until I was in my, no joke, until I was in my early forties. Yeah. I feel more like I'm in my prime now and prime of life in so many ways in my forties than I ever did, even in my teens. I mean, I was obese from, from infancy. So for me, I, I never had a prime to, to kind of look, look at, look to and think, Oh, well, I should be living this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of makes you though, appreciate what you have now so much more, doesn't it? Yes. Because I don't, I don't think like that, that is like, if there's a silver lining to struggling with your health for so long, it's that when you get to that other side, you can appreciate it so much more because you know, you know how the other half has been. And, mm -hmm. and so like, I you, it. <laughs> yeah, right. So life 2.0 is pretty freaking sweet. Is it not? Absolutely. And I'm, I am a uh, mama bear about it. <laughs> I, I fiercely, fiercely protect it. I fiercely protect my health. I fiercely protect my recovery and all of the things that go with it and all of the, 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 the behaviors and the activities and the, the requirements that, that I know keep me safe. I fiercely protect them. So let's talk about uh, all of those uh, pre 2.0 conditions here. And were you on a lot of medication? You mentioned high blood pressure there. Uh, you mentioned joint problems. You mentioned depression, I think anxiety as well. Uh, were, were you just on a cornucopia of pharmaceuticals? Ironically, not yet. Wow. Okay. I think I was right about to be, I was on blood pressure medication mm -hmm. and I was on, they had, they had started after a sudden loss of a family member, uh, about four years before I began the weight loss journey, I was on, you know, antidepressants and that kind of thing. They were, they were trying to figure out the right one for me. Um, but those are the only two at the time, which is really incredible. Hey, you know what? Uh, that's, that sounds about right as well. Um, no, no problem there uh, whatsoever. When you were prescribed though, the high blood pressure medication, like I was super young when I went on uh, high blood pressure pressure pills. I was like 14, right? Mm -hmm. How old were you when you were given that prescription? Oh, early twenties. Okay. Early twenties. It was right around the time I graduated college. Do you remember that day and kind of how you felt leaving the doctor's office? You know, I, I do remember that day and I remember, you know, it was so interesting. I remember thinking, I didn't put it together until you asked me this question, but I remember thinking, you know, well, this is what grandpa takes and this is what I know mom's talked about taking. So I just, it almost felt 
like this is what the family does. We we take blood pressure medication. We take our blood pressure. We you know we have a we have a cuff at home. It's what we do. And I didn't <laughs> I didn't realize how how dysfunctional that was. Right, that, that thinking process was. Yeah. Some families they play board games. Some families play cards. Others watch movies. We we check our blood pressure. <laughs> We've got a cuff. No big deal. Yeah. In our in our twenties. Yeah, that's just what we do. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, what did you do after you left the doctor's office that day? Did you go and pick something up, uh, a, a treat to eat, so to speak? Yes. There, there were so many times where I would leave and it's so interesting and knowing what I know now, but I get it. I would leave doctor's appointments. I would leave a therapist appointment and I would go and eat. Mm. I mean, just like, cause effect it was just right there all the time and um yeah it was uh, i didn't understand it back then I, I i get it now oh absolutely uh food is medicine in both the best and the worst ways um that's that's exactly what the case may be and i know that um flipping through your youtube channel which is great by the way i i love the vlog that's what what the kids call it these days. Gosh, I feel <laughs> old. Uh, the vlog uh, that you put up there is, is just so great. And, and you talk about the emotions and even just going into the grocery store and, and how that kind of makes you feel these days. I'm going to talk to you about um, all of that. Um, but what was the tipping point for you? And let me let me kind of preface this by saying I get asked this all the time myself. And I can tell you that it's kind of a frustrating question because there's not just one particular thing. I can't even remember the one particular day when I was like, enough is enough. But for you, what was it that kind of pushed you over the edge and said, well, look, you know, I've done all of this. I've lived through all of this. It's getting worse. I just can't take it anymore. Mm. That was um, probably late 2007. I was in my early thirties and I remember thinking, you know, that, that, that still small voice inside me, you know, maybe my soul, something spoke to me and said, if you don't do something now, you won't make it till 40. And I knew at that point that I was intentionally hurting myself. Mm. I knew at that point that I was so deep in what I now know is processed food addiction that I was intentionally hurting myself. And I thought if, if, if I don't turn this, you know, right the ship, it's, it's, I'm going to take myself down. And, um, I had a choice to make and I thought I have more to do here. I'm way too young and I have, I have more to do. I have more life to live, but I have the way I thought about it was I have more to give. Did you wrestle at all though? We've been talking about self-worth. Did you wrestle at all with, do I even want to live to see 40? Obviously you made the different choice, but did you even ask yourself that question at any point? Yes. Yes. And I was so deep in these addictive foods that cause all of this emotional dysregulation. I was severely dysregulated from you know life as it were. And some of the curveballs that life had thrown to me by that, by that point. Um, and I was deep in this place of not knowing how to process all the things that were coming at me after a lifetime of a lot of, a lot of loss. Mm. And so, um, for me, yeah, it really, it was a, do I want, do I want to do this? Am I worth doing this? But I, that, that my soul was speaking to me saying, you have more to do here. There's more to do here.
So we've kind of painted uh, these addictive foods with broad strokes here, but let's put some uh, some more fine tuning on this canvas that is your story. Um, when we talk about these really heavily addictive foods for you, what were the ones that you struggled with the most? Which ones really called out to you? Anything, all the baked goods. <laughs> Sweet tooth, eh? Any of the sugary, fatty concoctions. Those those were my downfall. Donuts. Let's you know a, a donut was my kryptonite, mm. and uh, anything associated with a baked good would be my kryptonite. Not uh, not so much salty. So you weren't uh, like a, a drive-through queen the same way that I was the king of the drive-through. That wasn't your jam. Uh, if you Actually, were doing it, yeah. As, oh. my, as my addiction progressed and got really in the severe phase, I was the drive-through queen. Here uh, we go. All two, right. Today, that's why I so. That's why I feel like kindred spirits with you. And that's why even Chef AJ was like, you got to talk to Chuck Carroll. <laughs> you guys are like this, you know, two, three times a day. I would, I would use my, my cell phone and like mock that I was on the phone with my family and that I was taking their order. And then I would order two and three meals. Yeah. Girl. Not every oh. time, but when I was feeling really vulnerable and like I needed two or three meals worth, I would just act like I just put the phone down and this is what my family wanted to eat. I am actually really impressed with you right now. I had a <laughs> lie at the ready, but I wasn't like acting when I was, I was there. Like, I mean, I got called out on it one time and I was able to pull that lie right out of my pocket. But for you to go through those theatrics when you were at the drive-thru, I yep, mean. I was feeling real vulnerable and I did not want anyone to know. Yep. That is commitment. Uh, what was your go-to at the drive-thru? For me, I mean, it, it, the order never wavered. Did you have a standard go-to or were you kind of a variety as the spice of life person? No, I was a, I was a cheeseburgers and pizza kind of gal. Cheeseburger, pizza, French fries. That was my jam. So any, any combination of those, pizza wasn't really a drive-thru thing much, but, but the burger situation, burger... Um, I lived at the time in the Chicago Milwaukee corridor. So you're talking about all kinds of, you know, cheese curds and fried things and, <laughs> you know, um, cheddar burger thing. I mean, any of it, it was just off to the races. Um, so, um, Italian beef sandwiches, steak sandwiches, that kind of meat, cheese, bread, ketchup and pizza. And then baked goods, all kinds of baked goods. It didn't matter oh, if it was sugar and fat combined with uh, some kind of icing. It was good to go. A sugar fat and uh, those those meats and cheeses. I mean, you're gonna throw a, a sodium bomb in there. You're hitting oh. that whole SOS oh. trifecta. I mean, my goodness gracious. Yes, it three was, and it was three. the the deepest part of my addiction. I would start out at Panera Bread in the drive-through in the morning and get a box of different baked goods. And then by lunch, it would be some sort of cheeseburger. Dinner would be pizza. Um, there'd be some fried chicken in there somewhere, some chicken strips <laughs> somewhere. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, and it was drive-through meals two to three times a day at, at the deepest part of it. Have you ever added up how many calories a day you were <sighs> eating? You know what I did after I listened to one of your interviews, I sat down and I listened and I started to add it up. I must've been over 7,000 yep. on, on a given day. Yep. And you have no idea at the time, do you? And then when you see it on paper, you're like, oh my God. 
Well, that knowing what crazy. I know now, right? Knowing what I know, how yeah. many is like, I was eating a whole week's worth yeah, of, right? of intake in one day. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned Panera. Was, was that every single day for you? Were you kind of on a first name basis with the crew there? Uh, not with Panera, no. Panera okay. was going to be a once a week gig, but um, the the people at the gas station that I would buy, you know, gas stations in Wisconsin had like the whole bakery inside the gas station. And I was I like, did hey, not know this. This is a good place to buy my food, I thought. This is, you know, something that was appropriate, I thought. So, yes, they knew me. They knew all of my orders. They would say, oh, we have your special whatever cookie in today. And I would be mortified. And then still buy it and eat it. Mm. So, yeah, it was this, this kind. I was a walking contradiction, right? You know, the, an addict. I was deeply in my addiction, totally filled with shame, and yet completely in denial. Like you see this too? What? Yeah. Like it was just it was classic. Did you realize? that you were an addict at that point. I mean, obviously there's, there's shame that comes there. I was a good long, I mean, a good number of years into my journey before I realized like, oh crap, like I'm fully addicted. And I do remember that epiphany very clearly. When did it strike you like, oh, oh crap, I'm, I'm hooked. Yes. Uh, well, it was probably 2017. I hadn't found my way into the the world of formal recovery, like 12 step recovery and some of those other things. And I am not affiliated with, with any of the 12 step groups in food recovery. Um, however, I learned a lot from them. Um, but it was probably chef AJ. It was probably back in 2017 when she played, um, one of the interviews, I think it was with Dr. Jeff Novick and he talked about, or Jeff Novick, the dietitian, and he talked about how you, um, you know, like the, the, the way that you will come down from food, and the implications in your bloodstream from the food leaving your bloodstream can cause all kinds of emotional dysregulation. And I remember I was like cleaning my house, listening to the interview or the talk. And I just looked up and I thought, that sounds like me. Like I'm really irritable all the time when I don't, <laughs> when I come off certain food. Cause back then I was still trying to moderate processed food. Mm -hmm. And I remember I would be like hangry and irritable I was still, I hadn't found whole food plant-based quite yet. And so I was leaning that way, but I wasn't there all the way yet. And so I had all these issues with food. I had the food monkey on my back 24 seven. I was managing the new, you know, um, lifestyle. I was maintaining weight loss, but I was white knuckling. Uh, so I was essentially a white knuckle dry drunk around food <laughs> and I didn't know it. So when I heard this and I started to, to actually read more about processed food addiction. And then I found my way into codependent recovery. And that has a lot of, of interaction across pollination with alcoholis, alcoholism recovery, just because you want to learn about what, you know, the, the, the thing that ails you, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from childhood and it wasn't, it wasn't my alcohol, wasn't my addiction, but it's, it was in my family and in my life. And so when I learned about alcoholism, I was like, I'm a dry drunk food addict. Like I'm a, I'm a food alcoholic. Like I'm a really, really, really severe food alcoholic. It was just like, it was an epiphany. Like remember that scene from Clueless where she walks in front of the fountain and the fountain turns on. That was what I felt like. It was like the lights came on, the angels sang, the, the waterworks started. It was like, 
oh my gosh, like I, I got it. I finally understood it. And that's when I realized, okay, alcoholics can't have a drop of alcohol. So I can't, I can't eat these foods. Like this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, no, I don't remember that scene in Clueless. That's not really my kind of movie, but I do know the feeling that you're talking about. Um, that's for sure. Um, let's talk about the emotions though, that, that detox, I remember it just being hell and torture. Um, and I use those feelings to this day to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow. Cause I yes. never have to want to go through that withdrawal period again. Um, what was that like for you? I mean, you basically just said that it wasn't pleasant, but I mean, give me some specifics there. What was that range of emotion for you? Depends on what, now I know it depends on what the food was, but if it was, you know, uh, maybe if it was a typical processed food meal, uh, it'd be, you know, anger, irritability, uh, very quick, you know, short fuse. Um, I would be, you know, sad, happy, everything in between, like, you know, sort of bouncing all over the place. Um, and I had, you know, I had worked with a counselor for many years by that point. And I started working with a counselor in 2008. This was 2017, 2018, when I was really realizing and putting all these pieces together, I had done assessments. I knew I didn't have mood disorders. I knew there wasn't some major psychological under underlying issue. And I thought, why am I still showing up this way? Mm. And so, yeah, that pain not to mention the joint issues, not to mention, you know, maybe even breathing issues and that kind of thing where I just felt winded more. And I was so used to not feeling that way that I remember feeling that way after a, a, a particularly fatty meal when I was having, you know, an American Dietetics Association, wonderful woman, but a, but an ADA dietitian telling me, moderate these foods. Mm -hmm. You can have that slice of pizza, you know, filled with dairy and gluten and, and sugar. You can have all that just, you know, have your peace and move on. And I thought, well, sure, you know, I've, I've been sort of maintaining this, this weight, this number on the scale for a while. Oh, sure. I'll have it. And then I would just have a food monkey on my back for days and I'd be irritable and prickly and kind of sad. And it just, it didn't feel, and I would feel like I was white knuckling, like I was gripping food sobriety with all of my might. <laughs> Cripping food sobriety. I love the way you talk, man. It is colorful. I dig it. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, the moderation though. I mean, that is something that a lot of people don't realize. And it is my, just my position. I can't speak again on behalf of the organization, but just, it is my position that that is why so many of these diet plans do not work in the long term because they do rely so heavily on moderation, which means that you can still eat that pizza. You can still eat those donuts. You can still eat all of that good stuff, but you just can't eat a lot of it. And as you said, though, when you're white knuckling and you're holding on to that food sobriety with everything that you have, eventually that grip is going to slip and you are going to give in to temptations because one's going to hit you on the wrong daggone day and then the wheels come off. Well, do, do you think that that's kind of like why so many diets don't succeed in the long term? For sure. Well, I know now and from the research that I, that I understand now, stress pathways, when they're activated, they're, it's literally the, the addiction in action, right? When the stress pathways get activated, that fight or flight amygdala is, is going and you will make choices based on, on relief of pain, which 
usually for me led right to the addictive foods instead of of understanding what's happening or de-stressing first and then finding a food that's going to agree you know with your goals or you know with uh, taking you away from those addictive foods for me though yes that it, it got to the point where i couldn't hold on anymore but it was in the holding on that i became you know the the person that i didn't like i was that's the holding on i was irritable i was i was just rigid i was fearful all the time of food i was you know i had a food monkey on my back constantly whispering in my ear go ahead just have one you know you can just have it you can just do it and i would i would you know hear that voice you know kind of pushing me and urging me to to just you know go ahead and get you know find that pizza again just have that pizza uh, you know, have that ice cream, you know, it's in the freezer. Just go, go just, you, you got this, you got this. Look, you've been this weight for years. You got this. I didn't have it. Mm. Mm -hmm. I didn't have it. So, so the white knuckling was actually uh, almost as bad as losing the grip. Oh yeah. Hangry, hangry to a whole other thing. And, and it's funny, like that, that food monkey that you use, you know, I use that angel on the, the shoulder and the yeah. devil on the other. Um, and, and I always laugh, you know, when I think about like, there's a, devil whispering in your ear to eat the angel food cake, right? Isn't there some irony there, right? And that's just oh. going to completely, completely <laughs> impede your progress. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's just so crazy. Um, what are some of the, the diets that you had tried prior to reaching whole food plant-based? Are you somebody who had really just like checked a lot of those different diet boxes and, and done a little bit of everything? Yes, I was brought to my first dietitian and diet program probably in my, I was not even, I don't even think I was 13 years old. And uh, I was being put into Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or uh, Nutrisystem, I think I'd tried at one point. I had tried one of those doctor supervised liquid diets at one point. Um, I had tried, I mean, yeah, yeah, you name it, I tried it. And I had also done, um, right before I found, you know, food addiction recovery and eventually whole food plant-based, I had tried keto. I was on that, you know, everyone's doing keto and, you know, all these, these 20 something size zeros are doing keto and I, I'm just going to buy beef towel and, and cook my pork chops in it. And that'll be just fine. And I, I'm just going to hit my, hit my natural spelt weight doing that. And I, I really believed that that would work. And, um, I remember I did it. I did it religiously. I was just like a, a, you know, fixed on my goal. Six weeks, I had done it, and I was like, yeah. And I put on, I put on a pair of pants to go out that I hadn't put on since about two months, and they didn't fit. And I was like, I remember thinking like, this isn't right. What well, they they told us that we could eat this way and lose weight. Like, why doesn't why don't these pants fit? Like, it was just such a let down. And of course, when I, when I got back into my right brain, I'm like, how could that have possibly worked? <laughs> like, right. you just, you believe the hype, you believe the, the cell. And, um, I was, I remember even with, before the pants didn't fit, I remember I just didn't feel right. Like I felt lethargic all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was still food focused, super food focused. Um, I didn't have freedom from it. And, uh, yeah, it just, the, the pants not fitting was just the icing on the cake. Oh, God. 
That's just so brutal. I mean, what a letdown. I mean, you want to talk about letting all of the air out of the balloon. I mean, golly. I mean, you you hope they get so high and then uh, another failed diet. Like, oh, God, that's just the worst. Um, You mentioned something that, that caught my attention there also. You mentioned when you were talking about all of these different diets that you tried, you were 13 when you oh, yeah. did your first formal diet. Teenage emotions are fragile to say the least to begin with. What was that experience like for you? I would imagine that was just like self-esteem shattering. It was. It was and I think and I don't I am not a victim, but I think as a as a woman and a young girl in that you know with this this sort of hand that was dealt me and the one that I perpetuated, it, it just made everything so much worse because of the expectations on young women to look a certain way and on, you know, the way the media sort of grooms young women into, into sort of this ideal of beauty. Uh, and I was so not that ideal in every way. And so, yes, it was deeply shaming. Uh, it was um, just, you know, life, um, you know, sort of soul sucking to, to be honest, I felt like I was this 12 year old, 40 year old, you know what I'm saying? I was mm-hmm. around a bunch of 40, 50 year old women and they're all, you know, trying to be kind and loving to me. And I just was like, I don't like, you're not my peer group. I don't know what to do with any of this. And it just felt like I was growing up way too fast and yeah, I right. didn't know how to articulate that. And of course I just rejected it because I, I just wanted to be a kid doing kid stuff. How are you, like, how in the world can anybody expect a teenager to relate to somebody who's in their 40s or 50s or even a little bit older than that, right? You're clearly not at home watching Golden Girls at that point. Like, what, you know, like, how in the heck did anybody think that that was a good idea? Yeah, um, I think it came came from a place of fear it mixed with love, right? On my mother's part, it came from a place of, I was here as a kid and I don't want to see you grow up with this. Um, and you know, the reality was I was already living with it and, and, Mm. and it was being modeled for me. Food addiction was being modeled for me. It's everywhere in my Mm. family, those behaviors around food. So both sides of the family. So for me, it was there, it was modeled. Um, and it was something where she could have taken me to anywhere. And, and I don't think it would have stuck because I was, I was an addict living in a, you know, a drug den. Let's flash forward to when you discovered whole food plant-based. When did that enter your life? That's, well, I dabbled in it for a couple of years in 2012 after reading, I think this is everyone's standard. I read the China study and then I watched Forks Over Knives and then I was, a you know, and then I became a plant-based eater. Uh, and I did, I really loved it. Um, however, I got lazy with it. Uh, I didn't understand the science behind it. And I started eating way too much plant-based, you know, meats and some of those meat alternatives. And sure enough, after a while that, that, you know, um, shine on life that I had when I first went plant-based back then sort of dulled and I didn't feel as good. I didn't have as much energy and had some hair and skin issues and I just didn't feel great. And I remember I I left the plant-based world and, and went in a different direction about 2014. And then when I started again in 20, you know, kind of leaning that way, 2017, and then fully by 2019, I was, I was in, um, that was, you know, where I was like, okay, we're 
looking at the whole nutrient density profile of this diet. And this is, you know, whole unprocessed plant-based. Um, so now it, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm eating tofu, it's, it's rare and it's, you know, it's measured and the rest of it is just whole nutritious, you know, nutrient filled food. So we know about, uh, your, your, uh, uh you know, your love of donuts. We know about uh, your love of cheeseburgers and pizza. Um, now you're eating something completely different. What is your plate looking like today? Uh, today, let's see, breakfast was a mix of a bunch of raw cabbage and kohlrabi and carrots and broccoli um, with some chickpeas and some quinoa. Um, I will have um, tofu scramble once a week. I will um, make, you know, a quinoa and raw veggie uh, and steamed broccoli kind of tomato based Italian dish. Um, it could look like for lunch, it could look like uh, a fat free refried bean burrito that I make at home. Um, it could look like, let's see, I will make once a week a, um, a gluten free, dairy free, a whole food kind of pizza concoction that's filled with veggies. And um, that's just amazing. Um, I make lots of just bright, colorful mixes of foods that are varied in their plants, varied in their nutrients, um, and really make me feel vibrant. So when you're eating these foods and you're crafting your menu now, does it give you any sort of concern to replicate the recipes that you once were eating uh, with far healthier options? Like, do you get nervous because you used to eat, uh, you know, burgers, right? Would a veggie burger that's whole food plant-based, would you worry that that could be a trigger for you? And, yeah. and okay, talk to me about that. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, and again, trial and error for me. So I don't make the, I don't make the plant-based burgers often. If I do, it's maybe a couple times a year. The reason is they're a lot of work. I don't know about you and any recipes you've got. They're a lot of work. So I, um, if I do, I make maybe a batch, two batches worth and, and then I eat off of them. But I've noticed that the whole idea of concocting it, even if it's on lettuce wrap, or even if it's on a gluten-free bun, you know, that my husband will eat, or I'll have part of, even if, those things, it's still, because it reminds me so much of it, I will be thinking about that, that burger after I ate it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that to me is a telltale sign. The same thing with like air fried potatoes. If I'm dipping some sort of potato looking stick thing into a, it's, it, it's a little triggering uh, for me because the ingredients are so clean. The pizza thing actually doesn't, I enjoy it and move on. Um, but again, it is super clean, super specific, and I make it in a certain way that, you know, that it's really about the veggies. <laughs> so yeah. for me, it, that doesn't really stick. Um, but yes, so um, I have never tried any of those plant-based dessert concoctions, uh, you know, like to mimic any baked goods. Uh, even if it's sugar-free or whatever, I won't do it. Um, I do, you know, ice the, the natural fruit sorbets and those kinds of things. I'll do those, uh, once a week, maybe. Um, and I'll have to be careful. I have to be honest with myself about that. Right. And mm -hmm. how, okay, this is kind of reminding me of things I used to love. So I have to be careful with this. Um, and, but, but the rest of it, I, I stay away from a lot of like the recipes that reminded me of the old days food. 
two schools of thought there is one. Yeah, uh, it absolutely does, you know, conjure up emotions of fear that you will revert back to your old ways. Right. Um, but there's also this part of me now that knows that even, uh, you know, even though there, there is that worry, if I stick exclusively to these healthier versions, mm -hmm. then I know with 100% certainty that they will not harm me. They themselves will not bring me physical right. harm. And so there is comfort that comes with that. And, and when I was much earlier on in this journey, like I was scared to eat a wrap, like any kind of wrap, because I was such a Taco Bell junkie, anything mm -hmm. that reminded me of a burrito from Taco Bell, just as you said, even a burger, you know, with a lettuce bun, we, you would worry about, right? So I would worry about that. Within the last six months to a year, I found myself growing more comfortable with that. So I hope that you find comfort in that as well. And I can tell you that um, my cravings for those old foods certainly have not gotten any worse, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel the need to wake up in the middle of the night and make a, a run for the drive through <laughs> You though will know, and I think you or anybody else, just speaking from experience here again, will recognize when you may be at a point when you can get comfortable like that. And that's that's a very individualized process and an individualized moment. So don't rush it if you're still concerned. But my hope for you, Jamie, is that at some point you will also kind of reach that conclusion where you do feel a little bit more comfortable eating um, those kinds of foods and, and be okay with it. I appreciate that. And for me, the measurement that I use, I never, I'm not worried I would ever go back to eating the way I did that that way that level that you even those even those types of foods right animal products i'm not even worried about that because the food just makes me feel so sick and, and i know i don't have thanks to dr bolsowitz i know i don't have the gut flora anymore to process any of that so for me it's not even like it really would be severe illness immediately so for yeah. me it's not but it's it's also keeping that food monkey away at the zoo. Like he doesn't need to be on my back anymore. It's, it's really about the food monkey for me. How much more confidence do you have in yourself now that you won't be going back up that weight roller coaster and that you finally have found the path for you that works? How much more confidence do you have today versus the confidence that you would have when you were entertaining other diets at the beginning back in the day? Yeah, uh, a lot more confidence now, um, and and it's, it builds every day. Um, it builds even you know when I have some weeks where I know that um, because I've played with my breakfast, let's say, and I'm not eating enough of my, my usual breakfast because of work commitments or whatever it is, I will eat more later in the day. Or if I have a day where we're real busy and we're kind of on the road, and I don't eat as much, even though I have my food with me, I don't eat as much because you know whatever things were distracting or got to doing something the next day I'll be hungrier, right? Totally normal stuff. But that old programming will sink in that, that diet mentality, like, Oh gosh, I'm losing it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm losing my, my food sobriety maybe, or I need to be really, really vigilant and careful. No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I watch it, but it's, I it never go off the rails. It's more like your body is just telling you that you didn't have enough food today or yesterday. And, it needs more food today, feed it appropriately, and it will stop calling to you. And every time I do, because I give it foods that it knows exactly what to do with, um, 
I don't, it, it does, it just takes care of itself. And even those days that I feel like I'm out of balance because of life or a decision I made that, you know, about my quantity of food and I'll feel like sort of imbalanced, I'll get to the end of the week and everything's just fine. You know what I'm saying? It's all, yeah. all status quo. Yeah. So enough of those weeks are being sewn together, Chuck, <laughs> over the last couple of years, two, three years now, they're being sewn together and I'm seeing what you're talking about. Um, couple more things here uh, with, with about five minutes that we have left. Um, I watched a video on your YouTube channel, which is is great. I think that the, the title of your YouTube channel is such a pretty face, which uh, I knew immediately what the reference was was to, at least I think I do, uh, because I, I heard, you know, similar thing. I never had anybody tell me I had a pretty face, but I knew exactly what you were talking about because I had heard similar things. Um, but anyway, one of the videos that you put up there, your vlog, uh, was about about, uh, you were actually in the grocery store and you were talking about how that was kind of a danger zone for you. You were worried about being triggered there because of all of the sweets that you would see there, those end caps, as you were talking about there. Um, for people who are currently in the struggle and uh, really do have those kind of icky feelings when they, they go to the grocery store or even the gas station you were talking about, what kind of advice can you offer them for managing those real cravings when they hit, when you're in those danger zones? And you know, so here's what I, here's what I learned and where that came from. So there's a woman who, Dr. Joan Ifland, who wrote, literally wrote the textbook on processed food addiction. And I've done a lot of, of work in, in her, in her research and with her research. Um, and what I understand now is about the cues and triggers in the environment. So if I'm in a, if I'm in a heavily cued environment, like a grocery store, and, uh, even though I know I'm hungry, I'm satiated, I know what that food, you know, if it's a baked good or some kind of cookie or whatever it is will do to me, I will still want to understand what that cue, seeing those things, visually seeing those things, what I understand that how that cue affects me. And for me now that cue doesn't affect me as deeply as it did before. But when I made that video, I was thinking about all of those people who were out there in the grocery store trying, they don't understand the, the cues and triggers of, of an addiction. They're trying to sort of resist what's out there. And I needed, I needed to talk about how I relate it to the pain and how even now when I know what that food does to me, and I really want nothing to do with it because I look at it the same way I would look at heroin or cocaine like that. That's insane. Why would, mm -hmm. I, why would I use that? It's the same thing with, you know, why would I use that food? Same thing. But I, I wanted to relate it and make that video to talk about the pain. I, I always relate it to the pain. When I see those, those foods, those baked goods, I know I'm in a cute environment. I know that it might, my visual senses are being assaulted with all of these, you know, triggers, smells, sights, sounds, all of these things of the foods that I used to eat. So I will remind myself, hey, you know what? That food really makes me sick. That food is the path to pain. And understanding Dr. Ifland's research really gave me the missing pieces so that I didn't get down on myself. And I didn't get down and say, why can't I resist this? Or what, what's wrong with me? Why am I not you know, stronger right now? It's, it's nothing wrong with me. It's my brain is wired to be cute and triggered by the processed foods I see in front of me. Um, just like a heroin addict is going to be cute and triggered if they're in heroin debt. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just, I shore myself up with self-talk. That's that, that's what that video was all about. 
Yeah, I, I love that video. And I love those analogies that you were just talking about. And that goes back to our conversation about moderation, right? You know, you're, you're never going to, an alcoholic is never going to completely be able to um, get sober if they have that occasional drink. Can you imagine there being a program kind of like a point system for a diet where you can have so many beers a week or so many glasses of wine and still be considered sober, or this is the path to sobriety. Like it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And yet we do view food so much differently. Um, and I think that people can't really appreciate the extreme of that kind of analogy unless they've been in that type of position. And a lot of people I think actually are, Jamie, still in that position and they just don't even realize it yet. Far more people um, than, than we even recognize. A uh, couple housekeeping notes uh, before we go. Um, you mentioned that you were on blood pressure medication for uh, a while and antidepressants. Um, are you off of all of your medication together now? Off all my medication. Yeah, good for, for you. For many years now, for many years. And the supplements I take, are actually at Dr. Barnard's recommendation um, uh, from all the research that they've done at PCRM and all of the amazing information I get on, on the podcast here. Right. On. Well, appreciate that. Uh, and a uh, final question is the fun one, one that I think a lot of people have been wondering since the beginning is how much weight have you lost? You look absolutely ravishing. What's your total? Thank you. Uh, over, I don't weigh myself on a scale recently. I would say based on uh, this, the numbers, about over 250 pounds. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That is a great number. And I'm so happy for you. I am so thrilled for you that you have your life back. Uh, you have version 2.0 now. And it is sweet every single day. I'm so thrilled for you that you are on this journey. And I'm so even more excited that you were able to share it with us here today. I think that a lot of the exam roomies are going to find a lot of inspiration from your story. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. And thank you for opening the door so stories like mine can come to the surface. There is a link to Jamie's vlog in the episode notes if you would like to follow along with her in her journey. You know, right toward the end of our conversation, I thought she really hit on something that was key and that she would beat herself up when the cravings would hit and wonder what's wrong with me? Why can't I control these things? And it's frustrating, definitely for sure. But the thing is, there is absolutely nothing wrong. Right? Because for Jamie and so many of us, when those cravings hit, that's normal. You are completely normal. Your brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's just that these foods have also been designed to take advantage of that. And that's why a lot of us wind up getting hooked on the standard American high-fat junk food fast food diet. And I was wondering about that. So I did a I did a video recently on Instagram where I was asking people what their vice is. What are the foods you feel like you are most addicted to? And the most common responses were the ones that you would think would be there. It was things like pizza and cheeseburgers and french fries and milkshakes and potato chips and cookies, chocolate, lots of chocolate. So what food has its claws in you? What are you struggling with? 
We did have some fun people who were saying, well, look, I can't go a day without my steamed broccoli and my black beans and my baked sweet potato, which is all good. But the vast majority of people, it was the standard American junk food that really, really, really got them. So I would be curious to know what your vice is. Let me know. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Chuck Carroll WLC. Really quickly, I wanted to share with you a voicemail that I got recently that really goes to shatter those vegan myths. I love it when we can do some myth shattering. You know, the general perception is that vegans are not necessarily the strongest people in the world. By sacrificing meat from the diet, you're sacrificing muscles in your body. But nothing could be further from the truth. Enter this voicemail that I got from one of the members of the Vegan Strong Team, our good friend, Robert Cheek. Hey Chuck, this is Robert Cheek, and I wanted to let you and the exam roomies be the first to know that the Vegan Strong Team absolutely crushed it at the Mr. America competition. We finished with 18 medals, including eight first place medals, five second place medals, and five third place medals. There were some records set along the way, and we had a bunch of individual champions, including someone who came all the way from Australia to compete with Vegan Strong on the plant-built team and set a record there. We had a woman from Canada win two first-place awards, and some of my best friends were out there, Jocko Marchese and Ed Bauer, finishing third and second, respectively, in their competitions, and I'd love to tell you more, so let's catch up soon. Have a great one, buddy. I appreciate you. Congratulations to the entire Vegan Strong team. Definitely can't wait to get them on the show here pretty soon. Hopefully that gets you all inspired to get your pump on, right? Or maybe just add a little bit of tone as you head into the new year, whatever the case may be. And I I enjoy Robert. Robert is a good friend. And if you haven't read his book yet, A Plant-Based Athlete, you should definitely check that out. I've put a link to it for you in the episode notes. That'll get you inspired to shatter another myth or two. No doubt about it. Let's see, what else is going on here today? We got a lot to talk about. Oh, we're hiring. The Physicians Committee is looking for a new office manager to help support our on-site staff here in Washington, D.C. So the deal is basically that this position would be the backbone of the office. You would be the Jack or Jill of all trades with your finger on a little bit of everything. From troubleshooting to guest booking to AV support, coordinating with vendors, a whole lot of stuff. So if you are looking for your next big challenge and you want to join our team at the Physicians Committee, you can visit pcrm.org careers or just click the link in the episode notes. Dr. Neil Barnard is going to be back with us on the next show. He's going to be doing the exam room live with me this Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Facebook and on YouTube. And the replay will be right back here on the podcast first thing Thursday. So you can grab it and go wherever you are. Raise your health IQs right into a new day. But for this day and this show, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Jamie Morgan Reno for being here and sharing her inspiring journey with us. I mean, look, this is just another example that nothing is impossible. 
You think when you weigh more than 400 pounds that you can never, ever, ever, ever lose that weight. But you can. And Jamie is proof she is my kindred weight loss spirit. And I am so grateful that she was here to share this with us on the show today. So never doubt yourself. You also have what it takes to make extraordinary transformations. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>